Well, Yesenia, if I told you that uh, there was the uh, most uh, well-qualified teacher's aide that would accompany you this year in your teaching in public school, and you wouldn't have to pay that teacher one penny, would you be willing to go for a walk with that teacher? Well, I've got some good news for you. Jesus has promised to send you the teacher, the Holy Spirit, to be with you and to give you wisdom and guidance in knowing how to reach young minds. I say that to my wife, too. <laughs> she has a challenge this coming year. She's going to have a class of 30 in a math class at the dead hour, the last period of the day. <laughs> and these are junior highs. So they're not particularly motivated to learn math. They have to be there. And uh, so she needs a great teacher to go along with her, and that's the Holy Spirit, too. You know, sometimes we think of the Holy Spirit's work as uh, kind of being a drab thing. We don't really know that much about him. It, he is really Jesus' gift to us to be our comforter and our helper to come alongside of us. When God the Father gave Jesus to this world, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, now, was that for just uh, the 30 years, 30 or so years that he walked on this earth that the Father gave the Son to us, to the world? And then when he left, he checked out, and that was it. He went on a vacation? No. When God gives a gift, it's forever. Amen? And he never revokes his gifts. No. When Jesus went back to heaven, he didn't go back to the way he was, right? He went back to heaven with the way he was when he left this earth, and that is with our humanity. And so that means he can only be at one place in heaven. So now he can't circulate everywhere at once, all over this globe. But he has promised to be with us, his presence to be with us, and that's why he has given to us another helper to come alongside us, and that helper is called the Holy Spirit. So he is the vicar of Christ. <laughs> he is the vice president of Jesus Christ. And if that helps us to understand the work and the role of the Holy Spirit a little bit better, maybe that imagery will. You know, the Holy Spirit is really uh, more good news on top of the gospel that we're already learning. Most people believe that God seems to be kind of a celestial killjoy who prohibits uh, everything that is enjoyable. And if you keep on doing what you like to do, then you're going to be lost. So the only way to be saved is to do what you don't like to do, which is uphill climbing and hard work all the way. And worse yet, trying to keep from doing what you like to do is sure torture. And that's supposed to be the faith of Jesus. Well, there's no good news in that if that's what one believes. But the Bible gives us a totally different idea here. The Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches us, is the one who does all of the hard work that may be involved in the Christian life. And uh, we are aware of tremendous pressures that are exerted on our sinful humanity. It, uh, we're constantly being put under tremendous pressure to cave into sin. But the good news is that we are not left to this battle alone. With these forces that would drag us down to ruin and death, because the Holy Spirit is doing the battling for us, and our part is to choose to let him do the battle for us. Here's a real good news text for you in the book of Galatians. So those of you who have your Bibles, go to Galatians chapter 5 and verses 16 and 17. Galatians chapter 5 and verses 16 and 17. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust or the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires or lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. There's that battle. And these are contrary to one another 
so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Uh, means that you're not under the motivation of, of uh, self any longer. Now, the good news in this is that the Holy Spirit does the battling for us. What you want to do is obviously what your sinful human nature prompts you to do. For Paul goes on down there in verses 19 through 21 to describe what the human nature wants to do. And it shows itself in uh, immoral uh, activity, in filthiness, in indecent actions, it says. And people are also very envious. They get drunk, Paul says. They have orgies. And they do other things like these. Well, these are the things that the spirit-filled Christian cannot do, even though your sinful nature wants to do them because you have someone who is stronger than your sinful nature, who is the Holy Spirit, who has won the battle. So it's like a guarantee. You will not satisfy the desires of the human nature. The Holy Spirit is an enemy to sin, and he does the fighting. My daughter has a couple of uh, cats, and she dearly loves those cats. And those cats have some interesting enemies, and they're always successful in the battle. She told a story about uh, going into her bathroom, and there was this ugliest spider. And, oh, it just freaked her out. Well, the cat got the spider. She said well, she opened up her front screen door, and a fly came flying in, you know, one of these big, fat, juicy ones. She couldn't get it. Well, the cats pursued that fly for 30 minutes, and one of them finally batted it down and ate it. Can you believe it? Cats are hunters, and they win the battle against all the odds that are seeming to be against them. I didn't know that about cats. Well, the Holy Spirit is like that with sin when you're confronted with it. If you go for a walk with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit if you do not hinder it, will be the victor every time in your life. Isn't it wonderful to go on an adventure, on a walk where you've never been before and the Holy Spirit leads you and guides you in the way? I remember one time my daughter and I went on a hike. Did you go on your hike with your son? Uh, that's a couple of weeks. Oh, it's still in the, in the offing, huh? Well, you have something to look forward to, don't you? All right, there's more incentive there to keep toned up. <laughs> well, um, my daughter and I, we, all, we have an um, annual hike that we do at the end of the summer. We haven't set the date for this one this yet, yet but um, we usually go up the highest mountain over here called Mount Whitney, over 14,000 feet. And uh, sometimes we take the more difficult route. And she, you know, it's kind of through the trees, and there's sometimes no defined trail, and sometimes you're out on an exposed rock. And when we got to this cliff area where there was just kind of a, you know, just enough of an edge for your feet to kind of walk right in front of each other, you know, and you had to have good balance, this really freaked her out. She had a pack on her back. And so... She would have never found this ledge if I hadn't been guiding her in the first place. But I said, honey, you can do this. Um, here's what you do. You take the pack off of your back. And then I will give you this pole, which you can use to keep your balance. Now, if, I, if you do that, do you think that you can go across this? This is about a six-foot you know, stretch, a very narrow ledge here with that exposure. She says, well, I think I can do that. And so she took the pack off and she went across and made it safely over, defeating the demons that were in her mind, you know. And then I came along with one of my, one of my packs and then another pack. I took the heavy load across for her. Well, when you go on this adventure of the Christian life, you're walking with the Holy Spirit. 
and he is guiding you. And when you come to those difficult spots in the road, in the pathway, uh, when he prompts you to drop the load, you see when it's, the way is narrow and straight, uh, then the pathway is easy to follow. And it's not difficult at all. What becomes difficult is when we try to take the big pack across ourselves and not let the Holy Spirit do, do it for us. So Paul is saying here, let the Holy Spirit direct your lives just like, uh, you know, we have been infected with a powerful disease in our life which is toxic that's going to kill us unless the antidote is found for it. And that powerful disease is sin, isn't it? And I understand that sometimes if people get bitten by a mosquito, that they can become infected with something like malaria or what's this new West Nile disease? Okay, I don't know if there is an antidote to that yet or not. And, um, but from, from malaria, there are some antibiotics that I think can be taken. And so they take the medicine and if you don't hinder the medicine and let it go throughout your body and it may sting going down, you know, as it makes it surge through your body, it goes right at where the infection is and stamps it out. The anti-malarial antibiotics. And that's also an illustration of what the Holy Spirit can do. If we don't hinder the Holy Spirit, he will go to right where the disease is of sin in our life and he will root it out from the heart. If you believe that the Holy Spirit is stronger than the flesh, then this emerges as fabulously good news. We're all aware of those constant desires of the flesh that is prompted by the mind, just keep surfacing. They want to win our consent, our yes. And since we have already fulfilled them, Putting up a resistance to them is all the more difficult. But since the Holy Spirit is at work to strive against the flesh, striving contrary to it, he wins the battle and we cannot do the evil things that we are prompted to do so long as we choose to let the Holy Spirit fight our battles for us. Well, this is indeed the dynamic good news that Paul's trying to give us. Paul absolutely will not give us any bad news. So let me read this to you from the New English Bible, this text, Galatians 5, 16 and 17. It says, I mean this, if you are guided by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of your lower nature. That nature sets its desires against the Spirit, while the Spirit fights against it. They are in conflict one, with one another, so that what you will to do, you cannot do. Or the Revised Standard Version, uh, probably even more explicit, it says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you would, that is, to gratify the desires of the flesh. So uh, Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is doing this striving just as Christ says in his prayer to the Father in John 17, 1 and 2, he has authority or power over all flesh. And the authority and power that Jesus has over all flesh is through his vicar on earth, who is the Holy Spirit, who's always stronger than the desires of our flesh, our sinful nature. So the first step in uh, victory over sin is first of all to simply believe this truth, to simply believe it. And the today's English version clarifies a detail in a previously quoted verse that is important. He says, I, I say, what I say is this, let the Spirit direct your lives and you will not satisfy the desires of the sinful human nature. Maybe that's a little bit different than what you've been taught. You may have never understood how good the good news of the gospel is, but I must convey to you what the Bible actually teaches, and that is if you go for a walk with the Holy Spirit, do not hinder the Holy Spirit. He will lead you on the right pathway, 
and he will give you victory over the desires of your flesh. Now, the Holy Spirit, we are told, if you go to John 14 and verse 16, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. There's, we'll look at a few verses here in John 14. The Holy Spirit's promised to everyone who believes the good news. Here's what Jesus promised. I'll read it to you in today's English version, John 14, verse 16 and 17. Jesus prays, I will ask the Father, and he will send you another helper who will stay with you forever. He is the Holy Spirit who reveals the truth about God. The world cannot receive him because it cannot see him or know him, but you know him because he remains with you and is in you. Now, the word helper uh, is the word comforter here. Comforter is used in the King James Version. I suppose uh, neither one of these words, helper or comforter, is a wholly adequate translation of the Greek word. The Greek word is parakletos, uh, which is Jesus' way of introducing the Holy Spirit to us. Jesus says he's the parakletos. Uh, the world cannot see him or know him, but Jesus says still he remains with you and is in you. Now, the word parakletos means two things. Para, I suppose you could come up with the meaning of that word para. It means that uh, it means parallel, okay? He stays with us all the way. That's kind of the idea. Have, whenever you were a kid, I doubt whether you've been out by the railroad tracks recently, but when you were a kid, didn't you used to like to go out to the railroad tracks and look down them, you know, and it was kind of mesmerized me because if they, it was a straightaway, they just went on forever and ever and ever. And those two tracks are parallel to each other, even though it appears from your perspective that they're actually running in together down in the far distance. Well, that's an illustration of the Holy Spirit. He parallels. He comes alongside of you throughout the whole Christian journey. Then the other part of parakletos, the word kletos means called, and which means that the Holy Spirit is sent to us from the Father in the place of Christ in our hour of need. And so that's why we say that, G, that the Holy Spirit is the true vicar of the Son of God, or Christ's vice president. He's given to us. He is called by the Father to come along our side and to parallel us throughout our Christian life. Well, again, that's good news, but someone says, isn't it a hard job to remember all that you're supposed to do to remember and to stay on the right path as a Christian? No, because the Holy Spirit takes care of all of these problems. One time um, I went out uh, hiking up a mountain and we're going to do some steep climbing and I took a fellow along with me and it was during the snow season so we had on our snow clothing and we were going up this 40 degree slope and he was really getting nervous, I could see. I had him on the end of a rope and he says... Do you know where you're going? <laughs> because there was a big cloud over the top of the mountain. <laughs> we couldn't see the top. And it was shrouded up there, you know. Do you know where you're going? He says to me, at one point, the rope was like around 120 feet long. I was in the cloud. He couldn't even see me holding him from the other end. <laughs> I shouldn't tell. I've sworn off telling these stories because I get these looks from my wife. <laughs> I'm not doing this anymore, honey. <laughs> <laughs> do you know where you're going, he says to me. And I ho hollered back at him, I know exactly where I'm going. I've been up this chute before <laughs> to the top. <laughs> and so he followed me up. Well, that's the way the Holy Spirit is. Maybe we don't know where we're going in the Christian journey. We have a general idea where we're going. But the Holy Spirit knows where we're going, and he is in the lead of the climb. And uh, keep, don't let, untie yourself from the rope, you know. Don't hinder, don't stop him from leading you all the way to the summit. He, 
He um, constantly reminds you of what you need to know and shows you the right path. You know, the Holy Spirit is, is very, very patient, and he is extremely persistent with you as if you were the only person on earth. In fact, he is infinitely patient for the simple reason that he is infinite God. And no teacher ever coached a pupil through his training as faithfully as the Spirit coaches you. Here's what Jesus says. You have John 14, look at verse 26. In the today's English version, it says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and make you remember all that I have told you. Well, I, I asked the question, how could you go wrong with help like that? Unless, of course, you choose to, let, to not let him help you. He makes us remember all that Christ taught us in his word. I need that because my mind has a hard time remembering things. You look really sharp. You don't have that problem, but I do. <laughs> Did you know that the Old Testament teaches the same truth? In Isaiah chapter 30, verses 19 and 20 through 21, it teaches us the same thing that Jesus expressed here. So the Old Testament has good news. The text again is Isaiah 30, beginning in verse 19. Again, I'll read it to you in the today's English version. The Lord is compassionate, and when you cry to him for help, he will answer you, June. He himself will be there to teach you, and you will not have to search for him anymore. If you wander off the road to the right or to the left, you will hear his voice behind you saying, here is the road, follow it. Of course, when you read the Lord here, it means God, uh, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. The voice that we hear is the voice of the Holy Spirit, see? There's no possibility that we can lose the path with him staying beside us all the way like that. If we fall into sin while we have help like that, did you hear what we said? If, perchance, we fall into sin, if we have help like that, it's because of two reasons. Either we have rebelled against the helper himself, or maybe we don't understand and believe the good news. One of those two things. And the latter is the problem with... Uh, many untold numbers of sincere people. There are many sincere people, Christians, who think they know and they believe. And so when they fall into temptation, they think that, well, this gospel, there's no power in it, you know. Or I guess the Lord has reneged on his promise to deliver me. Or what may almost be worse, they think, well, I'm just not cut out to be a Christian, well, some think somehow maybe God hasn't predestined me to be saved. Well, the real problem is that they have never grasped how good the good news of the gospel is, and consequently, they haven't believed. The only sensible thing is for us to be modest and humble in estimating our understanding of the gospel, and those who think they know what the gospel is are given a caution by the Lord. It says in Revelation 3.17, you say, I am rich and well off. I have all I need, but you, are, you do not know how miserable and pitiful you are. You are poor, naked, and blind. So the Bible gives to us a good prayer that we could pray. Do you remember that man who came making a request on behalf of his son to the Lord for healing. Jesus asked him to be, all things are possible to him that believeth. And the Lord, or the man said, Lord, I believe. What did he say? Help thou my unbelief. Now that is a good prayer. That's a humble prayer. A very humble prayer. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. So that's the safest prayer that anyone could pray. Well, suppose you'd make, you make mistakes. Does that mean then that the Holy Spirit writes you off as a loser? 
There's a lot of people that think so. Their idea is that the Holy Spirit's love and his loyalty are just about as thin as their own loyalty and love. Their idea of the Holy Spirit is like that, so that if you have a least little mistake, if you flub up just a little bit, then he's going to take that advantage to an opportunity to abandon you. This is what they think, why they think it's so easy to sin and so hard to follow Christ. I don't find in the Bible that uh, the Holy Spirit is anxious at all to leave anyone. He's not anxious to leave us at all. The Father sent him on a job to stay with you forever, and he means to do just that. Now, if you persistently and determinedly beat him off, you can commit what Jesus called in uh, sin against the Holy Spirit. But even then, it's not he who has forsaken you, but you have forsaken him. Suppose someone has already made mistakes, and now they've decided to be a follower of Christ. Suppose someone has really messed up in the past, and now they've just come to know Jesus. What good news can you share there? What does the Holy Spirit do now? Well, he shifts gears. He has another uh, gift which will help to prompt us. He gives us the gift of repentance. The gift of repentance. Now, there's three things with the gift of repentance that the Bible tells us about. Jesus taught them right there in John 16. So just go over a couple pages, look at it. In John 16, there in verse 7. Okay, three things about the gift of repentance that the Holy Spirit does, and it's tremendous good news. Here's what Jesus says, John 16, 7. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter, the Helper, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin. Now, the word reprove there means convict. Now, at first thought, that may not seem to be such good news because isn't conviction, isn't that a very painful experience, someone asks. The answer to that question is yes. This is the feeling of, of hurting, of pollution, of shame, of alienation from God. But then, now, second thought is that it's the best good news that one could think of. Suppose... Your body, well, let's take uh, June's daughter's example here. She's having to have an eye removed because of, of a suspicious tumor. Suspicious tumor. Now, she's opted for the surgery, hasn't she? Is that a better choice than, than to keep the eye? So she's opted, rather than to lose, potentially lose her life, that she will lose one eye. And already the eye can't see anyhow, she says. So it's not as if she's losing anything right now that she doesn't have already, okay? And through the marvels of prosthetics, she can have an eye replacement and be semi-made, restored, and whole again. So, yes, it's painful for self to be convicted. But on the other hand, if you have this fatal disease of sin, isn't it better to have that sin removed, that, that infection removed, rather than to lose one's whole life? It is, isn't it? Suppose your body had no nerves to feel the sense of pain. You know, that's what happens when a, when a person gets leprosy. The nerves are deadened. Or destroyed so that the patient feels no pain. Even if pricked with a pin or seared with a hot iron, the, le the leper doesn't feel it. Lepers have their fingers chewed off by rats while they're asleep at night and lose them easily in accidents simply because they can't feel. So really, our sense of pain is a real asset to us, isn't it? A real blessing. So if the Holy Spirit did not do his work of painfully convicting us of sin, 
then we would be insensible of our own self-destruction. For sin always destroys. Well, how does the Holy Spirit convict us of sin? So, in other words, the conviction of sin, that's good news. We should be thankful. The Holy Spirit does that. Now, Jesus explains how the Holy Spirit convicts us there in verses 8 and 9. It says that he will reprove, that is, convict the world of sin because they believe not on me, he says. They believe not on me. Another word for believe is what? Faith, correct? Okay. So the real problem with sin is not the doing of bad things, but the root cause that produces those sins. What is the root cause that produces those sins? Unbelief. Unbelief in Jesus, you see. That's the root sin. Remember in the New Testament, to have faith and to believe is the same word. Would you like to see one of the clearest definitions of what sin is in the Bible in Romans 14, verse 23? Keep your finger there in John chapter 16. But Romans 14, 23 says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Because faith, unbelief, is the root cause of sin. No one has ever fallen into sin except when the real reason was unbelief. And if a person believes in Christ in the sense of appreciating his love, which drove him to bear our sins to the cross where he died the equivalent of the second death. Anyone who appreciates that love of his and his righteousness, the result in the life is automatic. Righteousness, because we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. All unrighteousness, therefore, is the fruit of unbelief. The Holy Spirit puts his finger then on the, on the sore spot. He will reprove the world of sin because they believe not on me. Uh, the Holy Spirit convicts us then of unbelief. See? Then uh, the second thing, in ver- John 16, verses 8 through 10, uh, leaving out a few of these words, it says, And when he has come, he will convict the world of righteousness, it says, because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more. When Christ was glorified by the Father because uh, he had finished the business of the plan of salvation, he had finished the work that he could do on this earth, what was his work to do on this earth? It was to develop a righteous life in his humanity. Oh, here's the question I want to ask you to help you to focus on this. Was Jesus righteous before he came to this earth in his first visit? Okay, you don't mind if I say no. <laughs> it was a trick question, Mark. Jesus was holy before he came to this earth. He wasn't righteous. Now, this is an important point, and that's not trivial. Um, are the angels called righteous or holy? Hmm? You ever hear of righteous angels? They're holy angels, aren't they? Okay, so just what is righteousness? Righteousness is uh, developing a walk with God and his will in human life. This is what Jesus did. He took our humanity. He subjected himself to our temptations, and he, he was able to overcome all those temptations, those inclinations which he took. As a result, he's called the righteousness of God. See? So righteousness is the character that's developed in walking this earth and not any other place in the universe. Everywhere else, as far as we know, is holy, (laughs) you know, except for here. This is why we have a Savior who came very near to us, and he's not far off. So the the righteousness of God, the Greek word is uh, dikaisune, and... um, the earth, uh, well, the, inhab- the people on this earth were touched by the righteousness of God for some 30 years or so. And uh, that was the limit of what they could stand of the righteousness of God on this earth. What did they do with the righteousness of God? They put it on a cross, you know, and get rid of it. 
That's what human judgment is regarding the righteousness of God. Well, in the final days, that righteousness of God is going to become the dikaimata, dikaiomata of the saints, the righteousness of the saints. They will overcome even as he overcame. And how long will they put up with 144,000 who demonstrate the dikaiomata of, of Christ? Not very long. They'll set up a death decree and say, you're out of here, man. <laughs> and that's when Jesus is going to come and rescue his, his own. So righteousness pertains to our walk here on this earth. It doesn't pertain to what Jesus was before he came to this earth. So when the text says here in John 16, verses 8 through 10, when he has come, he will convicts, convict the world of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. When Christ was glorified by the Father because he had finished the work he was given to do, developing perfect righteousness in his humanity, uh, in his absence, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of that finished work of righteousness, for Christ has gone to the Father with that perfect righteousness. We are by nature so vain that we imagine ourselves, don't we, to be pretty good people. How deceptive our na human nature is. <laughs> our natural sinfulness is blinded, has blinded us. Have you ever heard of an unconverted person boast that he is as good as some people who, are go, who go to church? Have you ever heard a person, unchurched person say, I'm just as good as that person that goes to church? You know, our laundered linen hanging on the line looks white until a fresh snowfall shows up its ugly grayness by comparison. Christ's personal presence in this world nearly 2,000 years ago, reproved his contemporaries of righteousness because for the first time in history, in contrast to themselves, human beings saw what a character of true love really is. And When they saw the revelation of their own selfishness, many were so angered that they cried out, crucify him. But those who believed were transformed to be like him in character. But now Jesus is gone and we see him no more. So the Holy Spirit does for us that which we could never do for ourselves. He convicts everyone, every man, of an ideal of righteousness, a standard that is set for him personally by the character of the Son of God. Every man can in this way see the contrast between what he is and what he ought to be and what he can be in Christ. And that is the special work of the Holy Spirit. The conviction is more real and has and his work more efficient for us than if Jesus himself were our neighbor living next door. And remember, you don't get one five billionth part of his attention, even though there are more than five billion people on earth. Because the Holy Spirit is infinite, he gives each one as much attention as if he were the only person on this earth. God can do that because he is infinite. The conviction of sin is not to show us up, not to make us feel embarrassed. It's not to condemn us, not at all. Remember, Jesus said God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So the work of the Holy Spirit is not to condemn the world. It's to convict the world, to show them Jesus who is all righteous and who is all love. And in so showing them and revealing Jesus and uplifting him and his cross, we sense that we need that righteousness. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's good news. Very good news, isn't it? And then the third thing that the Holy Spirit does is found in John 16, verses 8 through 11. Very interesting. It says, And when he, the Holy Spirit, is come, he will reprove, again the word is convict, the world of judgment. Because the prince of this world is what? Judged. And that word means condemned. Is Satan condemned? God does not condemn the world, but Satan is condemned, right? The one who is condemned is not you. It is Satan who is condemned. It's a delicious, exhilarating conviction that the Holy Spirit gives, dear friends, your worst enemy is condemned. 
he's defeated. And Jesus explains himself further in John 12, 37. It says, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. So the one who has tormented you all of your life and dwarfed your spirit, made you feel inferior and hopeless, that one is defeated and condemned and he's thrown out. Satan. Everyone needs the thrill of winning. One time I was crawling underneath our house up in, um, up in St. Helena. I guess it wasn't really a house. It was kind of one of these prefabricated houses that was moved over some foundation blocks, you know. And I was trying to fiddle around with a cable underneath there. And here was this spider with a red spot on it. And it was coming right at me. And I thought, oh boy, and this was crawl space. And there was nothing in my hand to go to battle with. And I don't know what, I think I may have grabbed my shoe and I whacked him. And I got out of there and I felt exhilarated <laughs> that I had defeated an enemy. <laughs> oh, wow, what a relief. <laughs> One time I was walking down a trail a few years ago and it was in the heat of the day. And I wasn't really watching or careful. Usually I'm cognizant, you know, thinking, okay, what could be up here? You know, maybe a cougar or something like that, you know. And I heard it before I saw it. It was this rattle. And there was a rattlesnake right on a rock, right on the trail. Well, I didn't stick around to beat that snake to death. I got out of there and I felt exhilarated like I had defeated the snake, you know, that at least he didn't get me. <laughs> now, uh, you know, whenever the Holy Spirit gives you a victory over the evil one, the old serpent, the devil himself, it's thrilling, isn't it? It's thrilling. It's not that we can boast in that, but we, our boast is in Jesus Christ and that he has given us the victory over sin. Uh, even the psalmist says in Psalm 91, verse 13, you will trample down lions and snakes fierce lions and poisonous snakes. Everyone who believes in the Savior then is to share in the high spirits of triumph over man's enemy who is Satan. So the promise of the gospel is not just pie in the sky by and by, you know, in the future, but it's now. The victory is now. Winning, winning in Jesus Christ Another gift of the Holy Spirit we've mentioned earlier is repentance. And repentance is not something that we generate within ourselves at will. Acts 5.31 says that Christ hath exalted God, him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. As a gift, repentance is worth more than any money could buy. For it provides the only avenue of escape from our inward prison, which we detest. It is a supernaturally endowed hatred of sin and a corresponding love for righteousness. And automatically, this produces a change in the life. Again, it is not a work that you perform. The Holy Spirit does it in you. So your job is to let the Holy Spirit do it, to let him give the, his gift and don't push him away. Did you know that the original meaning for the New Testament word forgiveness does not mean exclusively pardon? Pardon is powerful. Love of God is a powerful gift, isn't it? We've talked on many occasions of God's pardon, of his forgiveness of humanity legally. This makes it possible for God to treat, treat both his friends as well as his enemies with the blessings from above. But forgiveness does not mean exclusively pardon, as though God blinks his eye and excuses sin that's there, that's alive in the person. The word forgiveness means pardon and also a taking away of the sin. Have you got that? So forgiveness means you are pardoned, and then he takes it away from you. Do you see that? And that's why repentance and forgiveness are 
are bosom buddies. They're tied together, see? A truly repenting person can be freely forgiven by God because the repenting person now hates the sin itself, and therefore the sin is actually gone. Because Christ gave himself for our sin, they are rightfully his. We have no right to hang on to them. And anyone who is clinging to his sins is robbing Christ of what he has bought with his own blood. So here's the point that I would like to make, and that is this, that any brand of teaching regarding the forgiveness of sins, which is justification by faith, that does not include genuine forgiveness as remission of sins or taking them away is salvation from sin. That's a counterfeit teaching of justification. Justification means that God pardons you and he remits, he takes away the sin. And any kind of teaching of justification by faith that says it's just a legal pardon, it really doesn't do anything for you inside in terms of taking it away, that's a false gospel. It's a counterfeit. That is not the third angel's message in verity. What that is is the common understanding of justification by faith as merely a legal declaration on God's part. The um, <clears throat> Protestant reformers they were mightily used by God. But they were men that were chained in dungeon darkness. Some could not emerge into the full glory of the noonday sunshine all at once. And they had a very extreme view of justification by faith as being purely a legal declaration with no change in the life. Um, and uh, Count Zinzendorf was explaining this belief of legal justification to John Wesley. You know John Wesley? He was the founder of the Methodists, from which Adventism, many of the children of Adventism came from Methodism. Here's what Count Zinzendorf explained justification by faith to Wesley. He said, We spit out all self-denial. We tread it underfoot. As believers, we do everything that we wish and nothing beyond. We laugh at all mortification. No purification precedes perfect love. Don't say amen to that. That's a bad view. That's simply a forensic view of justification by faith. <laughs> now, Wesley, as a true Protestant, he protested against the idea that there is no purification in justification by faith. And this brought him into conflict with some people who had brought disgrace on the Reformation. And one of his assistants, John Nelson, tells of a clash that he had. I'll just share it with you as it reads from the text. He says, I met one of them the other day so drunk that he could not keep the cart on the road. I asked him what he thought of himself now, if death were to seize him in that wretched condition. He said that he was not afraid to die, for he was as his Savior would have him, have him to be, and if he would have him to be holy, he would make him so, but he was a poor sinner, and he hoped to be so to eternity. He said, you and John Wesley are enemies of the Lamb of God, for you want people to be holy here. I will not offer to save myself like you Pharisees. Here you have a drunk in a cart. He can't keep the cart on the road on a straight path. And he says, I've been declared righteous and justified, and God is going to welcome me, despite it. You know, John Wesley believed in justification by faith, but he never came to understand the Sabbath, and he had Sabbatarians around him. And he rejected the Sabbath. And he would drink his beer on Sunday. You know? Had no clue as to what health reform was. He mistreated his body terribly by the things that he imbibed. He there was a disconnect between what he believed and how he lived, you see. And this is the way it is with so many Christians. Oh, God's forgiven me. It doesn't have any impact on my life whatsoever. Do you know people like that? There are people like that in the church. 
they don't have a principled bone in their body. There's a disconnect. All they hear is, oh, God's pardoned me. That's all. That's it. And they don't see that that pardon also cleanses them from sin. That's true justification by faith. See? Well, that's what the reformers had. That's the evangelical gospel. See? But God has revealed to us a more dear and precious good news, and that is the truth of the sanctuary and its cleansing in the most holy place. That's what Jesus is doing. And we are realizing more and more that he's revealing wonderful, precious truth of his agape love. And the perfection that we are talking about is Jesus sealing his love in our hearts and in our lives, his agape love. That, that can only come by following him by faith into that most holy place. You'll never get it anywhere else. So don't go to any evangelical and expect to find it because they've rejected that truth. You know, I, I said it before, and I'll say it again, that the wonderful truth of the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary God has revealed to us from Scripture is the unique understanding of how Jesus prepares a people for his second coming to be able to stand and be alive so that those dear saints in the past who have died can be resurrected and we too with them can go to heaven. They'll never go there without a people that's prepared to stand alive for his coming. And so the minute that we obscure or drop out this wonderful truth of the sanctuary, then we don't have anything unique to contribute as far as preparing people for the second coming we might as well fold up shop and join the Seventh-day Baptists like Conrad I did when he rejected the sanctuary truth and when he rejected the spirit of prophecy. But that's another story for another time. <laughs> Let's bow our heads in prayer, shall we? Dear Father in heaven, we thank you tonight that we have a wonderful Holy Spirit who has invited us to go on a walk with him. And he is the representative of Jesus Christ. If we do not hinder him, he indeed will fight the battles for us. It's like being yoked up as a weaker partner with the heavier animal, the load bearer, who really pulls us along if we don't hinder him. And we gain one victory after another. I pray for each one of these dear souls today that what you have taught us will be clearer as a seed planted in our hearts that may grow and sprout and develop fruit. In the Savior's name we ask. Amen.